0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Lisa Blair was alone on a boat in the middle of the Southern Atlantic Ocean when she thought she was going to die. If it wasn't in the next five minutes, it was probably going to happen in the next 24 hours. She was fighting to keep her boat afloat after its mast had come down and was now in danger of soaring her boat in half. Lisa was in the midst of sailing around Antarctica by herself, trying to break a world record. And while she didn't break the record then, she did manage to stay alive for the next five minutes, for the next 24 hours, and for another four years in order to try it all again. Hi, Lisa.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. It is our
1: pleasure. Did you grow up on boats, Lisa? Like, did you spend a lot of time out on the water as a kid? Where does this come from is what I'm trying to find
2: out. <laughs> yeah, not really. Um, we actually grew up in the bush on solar power. So I was a little bush kid uh, on the Sunshine Coast. And um, mum got quite into boats when I was growing up. Um, but it was always more her thing to do with her partner. And uh, it wasn't until I actually randomly got a job in the Whitsunday Islands as the cook and the cleaner on a charter boat that I just it just opened up my world to what sailing can offer you.
1: Well, what did it open up to you? What, what was that first experience being on a boat like for you?
2: It was just that idea of having that kind of outdoorsy kind of problem solving. You're getting challenged regularly, but you're living in this most incredible environment. You're getting to see nature and like the ocean and all its moods like on a daily basis. And I just loved that lifestyle that you had with sailing and it wasn't until I kind of realised that sailing was more than just putting the white flappy stuff up and pointing the boat in one direction that I really like got excited about it as a sport because um, you know there's so much trigonometry and problem solving and um, sort of challenges you have to overcome in sailing to sail uh, and that's what I really like about it.
1: So how did you start making the move from being a, a cook and a cleaner on boats to, to a skipper? What opportunities came your way?
2: Yeah, it wasn't wasn't an overnight thing. Uh, I worked up there in the charter boats for like a year and after that I had this opportunity to sail with a friend of mine from university and her father on their boat, Bird of Dawning, from Samoa to Hawaii. And, uh, you know, being a 25-year-old single person, I was able to say a flat-out yes straight away and, and jumped on that boat. And yeah, we spent three months ocean sailing to Hawaii and it was just this most magical experience and... We didn't have things like cell phone, email, phone calls for three months with anyone on the mainland. And so for me, that was just a real uh, sort of, I guess, like relief part of sailing, like you leave all the clutter of daily life behind and you can just enjoy the fact that you're on the boat and having these adventures.
1: Hawaii to Samoa just sounds incredibly romantically beautiful. What are the waters like? What, what did you see on, on that journey?
2: Yeah, it's incredible, hey? Um, So you get days where it's just no wind sometimes and it was so crystal clear that everyone would just jump off the boat and go swimming in like three kilometre deep water in the middle of the ocean. And other days you've got whales around the boat. I remember standing watch one night and I was on my own on deck and it's like a full night of stars, like a full sky of stars and... It was like 15 knots of wind, so like perfect sailing conditions. The boat was just humming along beautifully and all I could hear was the whales breathing around me, like that exhale of the air and you could just see the glint of the sort of moonlight on the arch of their back as they swam near you. And, you know, those sort of experiences, you just can't get the same connection on land.
1: And were there tropical islands that you stopped at on that journey too in that part of the world?
2: Yeah, we we went to a number of different islands, and one of them was called Canton Island, which is actually a US-owned island and is still considered a military base to some degree. And they actually hire people from the Kiribati Islands to live on the island. So there's eight families live on this island for a two-year contract. So when we arrived, there was 28 people on the entire island. They're on there for two years, just the 28 of them. Um, And out of those 28, 16 were kids. So yeah, you get to just yeah have adventures like that
1: for you as a sailor though. Do you do you are you someone who's happier to be on the boat while it's moving or on the boat when it's moored at some gorgeous tropical island?
2: I definitely actually prefer to be moving. For me, I kind of get bored with the coastal sailing, the dropping anchor regularly, and and exploring different locations. It's something I'll do later in life, but now at the moment, I, I absolutely love. The idea of spending a month or more at sea crossing an ocean and you're only using, you know, your wind and the sails and your own kind of know-how, so to speak, um, to get yourself safely across that ocean and to and watch how the global weather patterns form and influence your changes and, and all of that side of challenges that you see out there.
1: So you were falling in love with the ocean and, and in love with the art and science of sailing. What race did you then hear about?
2: Yeah so um so I came back from Hawaii and I was kind of like in a funk because I just had this amazing adventure and then I came back and I got this crappy job selling costume jewelry in the mall <laughs> Um, and I was only like $20 an hour and, you know, you're under the fluoro lights and you're Whoa. like on display in the middle of the mall there. And I was just hating it. And I started, um, it was mum's partner, John, that started lending me all these books on solo sailors. So he was lending me like Kay Coddy's book and Robin Knox Johnson and, and all of these sort of, and like Jesse Martin, all of these incredible like solo sailors. And I was reading Robin's book and he talked about this race called the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race. And it's this amateur yacht race where you sign up, you pay a birth fee, and then you race each other around the planet and there's 10 identical boats, each crewed with about 16 to 18 sailors. And um, 50% of the crew racing have never sailed before they sign up and do that race. And so I just thought like I wanted to do more with sailing and that just seemed like such a good opportunity to learn as much as I could and experience ocean sailing a lot more.
1: I mean, it sounds brilliant and I can imagine if you were stuck under the fluoro lights uh, in a job yeah. you didn't like, it would have sounded super Dreaming. appealing. But how are we going to pay for that? Because if it's an amateur race, I imagine you had to, had to pay a lot to participate.
2: Yeah. So you actually pay a birth fee to sign up. And at the time it was 40,000 pound, which worked out to be about $80,000. Um, it's and a lot I of costume <laughs> exactly. It had no savings, no idea. And at the same time, I was sort of starting to ponder about that race. Um, Jessica Watson was finishing her circumnavigation. And for those who don't know, she's the youngest person to have sailed around the world solo, nonstop and unassisted. And, um, She completed her circumnavigation at the age of 16. And I remember kind of thinking, if a 16-year-old can figure it out, not just get the money, but get a whole boat together and sail around the world on her own, surely I can figure out how to raise like $80,000 and do it with crew. Like there's, there's no reason why I can't, except that I haven't tried. And so what did you come up with? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a steep learning curve. I remember uh, going to the local library and borrowing a book on sports marketing and, um, you know, reading about this thing called a proposal that you're meant to send to companies to, um, you know, try and get them to sponsor you. And, and so I really had no idea what I was doing, but I ended up convincing a local bike shop to give me a bike. And then I cycled from Sydney to the Sunshine Coast, selling raffle tickets all the way up the coast. And we did like some fundraising dinners and just like anything we could possibly think of to make it happen. And yeah, and I still fell about 50% short of the budget. So that was... So
1: you, you had to get 80,000 and what you'd made 40,000 or so, which in itself is incredibly impressive, but that's, were they going to be kind to you and let you on with just, you know, half the fee? How was that going to get you on this on this race? Yeah,
2: no. And it's one of the things with the contract that it's an all or nothing contract. So you sign up, you pay the birth fee and you race around the world or you sign up, you don't come up with the birth fee and you don't get to race around the world because they can only sell that birth to one person. So they still have to kind of recoup the costs um, from the crew. And so they weren't going to let me sail until I'd paid 100% of the birth fee. And so I um, I remember calling mum up and I was bawling my eyes out and i just sort of come to the conclusion that absolutely in no way, shape or form was going to happen because how can I raise another 40000 in a foreign country when I'd spent a whole year raising this much money in Australia where I'd have like a network of people and, um, Mom actually gave me the advice and she said like, just go to the UK, stay with our relatives, start your training. And like, you've at least paid for your training. And the whole reason you're doing this is to become a better sailor. So go and do the training and just see what happens. And so I did. And at the end of my first week of training for the Clipper, so I was doing my Yachtmaster fast track as well, which is a different course while I was there. And um, at the end of my Clipper first week of training, one of the crew came up to me at the pub afterwards and he was like, so... I, I love your attitude. Like, I want to see you succeed with this. Um, if I donate like £7,000 to you, is that going to help? Hmm. And I was like, yes, I, yes, that'll help massively. Um, so he agreed to that. And then he got in the ear of someone else who was there and that guy wasn't in a position to donate it, but he he offered to lend me, um, you know, about £5,000. And again, I said yes. And so suddenly this huge amount of money, which was 40,000 Australian, so about £20,000, was like much, much more achievable. Achievable and, and much smaller and so dad refinanced against the family home and we and we sort of like just did everything like everyone like family relatives everyone was pitching in what they could and uh, I fell short by like two thousand dollars and um, I remember calling the local paper on the Sunshine Coast and saying um, Hey, can we do an article and just see if the community on the Sunshine Coast can get behind me and, and help me raise this last 2000 because I'm so close. And so they wrote this epic article and that went up online. And then this guy that I'd never met before, had no idea who I was, happened to read this article. And he's an American citizen who was working in China who once holidayed on the Sunshine Coast <laughs> still reads the Sunshine Coast Daily from <laughs> time to time. And he gets what he calls his bonus money. He calls it his fun money and he donates it to different causes. And so he donated his bonus to me <laughs> that month and his bonus was $2,000. Oh. And he had no idea that he had just totally changed my life in that generosity, like that moment in time. And
1: oh, Lisa, I- that's so amazing. Both the lesson of asking but also of people giving.
2: Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I had a blast. It was one of the best experiences. And I came back with enough knowledge to feel like I could start being the captain of a boat, like hmm. the skipper of a boat.
1: So um, you'd had these great experiences sailing with other people. Was there this voice in, in your head somewhere saying, go solo? I mean, how did that come to be what you wanted to pursue, solo sailing?
2: Yeah, well, it was right back reading those books when I was working at that crappy job in the mall. Um You know, they were all solo sailing stories. And I remember thinking at that time that would be something really cool to do one day, you know, thinking like in 30 years' time when I've built up enough experience in sailing to go and do a solo trip, that would be something really cool to do then. And uh, so when I was doing the clipper race and we were racing around the world, it's a year that you sail around the world, it's 40,000 nautical miles, I would sort of look at every situation we encountered as crew and kind of step back and go, well, how would I have dealt with that if I was on my own, or or would I be in that situation? Would I have done that decision if I was sailing on my own? Like, what would that look like? And so I sort of had the opportunity to sail through all the world's oceans and to go through storms and everything with a crew of 16 people, but assessing it from a solo point. So that gave me a lot of kind of, I guess, confidence in the idea that solo was something that I wanted to do in the future.
1: And so you set as your first goal... The Trans Tasman to sail yeah. from Australia to New Zealand, which to me as a non sailor seems a kind of a reasonable proposition. <laughs> Did it feel right going it's- solo?
2: It definitely felt right. And I, I went into it with the intention that there's going to be a huge learning curve and I'm going to make mistakes, but that's okay. And I have, you know, 1200 nautical miles and 12 days at sea to figure it out. So I, I kind of took that attitude and, and I think that helped a lot with me having these problems that occurred and, and challenges that happened along the trip. And, um, you know, at the end of the day I was successful. So that's all that matters.
1: As you were doing this planning for this first solo solo trip, someone told you about a Russian sailor who ended up becoming a very important person in, in your life. I don't know if you've ever met him, but it sounds like he's had a big influence on you. Who's Fedor Konyukov and, and why did he become uh, such an important story for you?
2: So it was this whole horrendous year of trying to figure out how I could get a boat, borrow a boat, rent a boat, like figure it out. So it was actually while I was trying to get one of those boats and there was this guy who had a 40-foot yacht that looked awesome that I absolutely just wanted to race in this race and I was trying to convince him to lend it to me and he had said at the time, look, I can't lend it to you, but maybe you can get the sponsorship to buy it if you combine this trip with something bigger. And he pointed out this record that Fedor Konyakov had done. And he's like, the boat's perfect. It's something I'm looking to do down the line. Um, You know, take a look at it. So I Googled Fedor Konyakov, and he had sailed solo, nonstop and unassisted around Antarctica in 2008 as part of this race called the Antarctica Cup Ocean Race. And... I remember looking at that and just thinking, is this guy nuts? Like he's suggesting I sail this boat solo around Antarctica or it's suicide down there. It's the Southern Ocean. And had you been in the Southern
1: Ocean as part of that round the world race?
2: Yes, we had twice. Um, and so I'd done, you know, six or 7,000 nautical miles of sailing in the Southern Ocean. And, and I'd seen what those storms were like. And I'd seen it with that support network of a crew of 16 people and on a bigger boat. And, um, I, yeah, I just remember thinking that's something that's so far beyond my capabilities as a sailor or my knowledge base to even contemplate achieving. And I hadn't even sailed solo yet at this point either. And I just thought, nah, it's not, it's not a possibility at all. But, um, yeah, Fedor is just this incredible Russian adventurer. So you're
1: thinking it's completely impossible or not possible for me for years and years. I've got other stuff that I'm going to focus on. What changed?
2: Well, it was actually over months and it was one of those things that's like almost the seed was sown and, um, I went back to work in the Sundays, and I was, you know, doing charters around the Sunday tropical islands. It's beautiful and sunny and perfect sailing <laughs> conditions and you're snorkeling and it's so lovely. And I just couldn't shake the idea of what an epic challenge that would be. And could I do it? Would I be strong enough? Would I be able to figure it out? What kind of boat would you need? How, how cold was it going to be down there? You know, how strong's the worst storm? Like how strong is the wind in the worst storm? Like all of those sort of questions just kept floating around in my mind. And, and over the course of months, I just sort of started Googling things. And I started, um, you know, researching historical weather data and and looking into what a worst case storm would actually be like down in the Southern Ocean. And, and I realised that there's a, there's a huge difference between perceived risk and actual risk. And, For me, I perceived that, you know, public opinion and and my opinion at the time was it's the Southern Ocean and it's suicide and it's incredibly dangerous for a number of reasons, Um, but if you have the right boat for those dangers, if you, if you tackle it from the right direction, then it eliminates a huge chunk of that risk and then it's just the isolation and, and you know, obviously icebergs and things like that that you might come but unstuck with. That's so Obviously. Obviously <laughs> icebergs.
1: So was there a moment when you realised you'd made the decision you were going to try, try this?
2: Well, I said to mum, because mum's like been a huge, all of my family have been a huge part of my projects the whole way around, but I remember talking to mum initially and she's like, and I was like, so what do you think about this idea around Antarctica? You think I could do it? And she's like, no, not a chance. This isn't something you're doing. I'm not letting you do that. And then I sort of got the boat together and I did the trans-Tasman yacht race and I came back from that and I asked her again and I was like, what do you think about this Antarctica record? And she's like, well... I suppose you've got like 3,000 ocean miles of solo sailing now and and you've been through some storms and you've got a really good idea of what you're going into. Um, You know, if you're interested, I'll support you. So all of my family got behind me and and I made that commitment uh, and that was in 2014. And uh, on the very back edge of that race, I was like, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sail solo around Antarctica and uh, and attempt to break Vettel Konyakov's record. And it was actually... um, in Malulba at the end of that race. And this is how crazy Fedor Konyakov is. So he was rowing from Chile to Australia in a rowboat. What? Yeah. And they had a last-minute diversion from Brisbane to Mooloolaba and I was in Mooloolaba and because I had already made contact with the Antarctica Crup race official, um, Bob Williams, he put me in touch with Fedor's son, Oscar, and I helped them support them with their arrival into Mooloolaba because it's my home port and uh, got to meet him. So, and what yeah, was he like? He was awesome. He doesn't speak a lick of English. Um, he's this big, burly Russian. He was about 64 when he finished that ocean row. So he's, you know, climbing. Mount Everest four times. He's the first Protestant priest to the top of Mount Everest. He's rowed uh, a rowboat from Chile to Australia and then he's done from New Zealand to Cape Horn. He's done, um, sailed around the world solo four times, dog sled teams to the South Pole, North Pole. Like he's just done all this incredible adventuring. And, you know, obviously he's like this weathered, Guy, this big beard and uh, just so much character, and yeah, and he gave me the advice: always pass icebergs to the north because all the kind of broken bergy bits are all to the south. Um, So that was uh, my little bit (laughs) of takeaway. Had a cup of tea. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing. Well, you know, given all the things he's done, maybe your plan to sail solo around Antarctica was kind of straightforward. I guess it's all relative.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, how did you go about
1: choosing what route to take? How how closely do you plot that out before you start?
2: Well the weather dictates majority of that. So the record itself is Albany to Albany in Western Australia. And you have to sail straight south to 45 degrees south, and then circumnavigate between 45 south and 60 south in the Southern Ocean. So the rum line distance is around 14,500 nautical miles, and you're expected to sail roughly around 16,000 miles. Um, so the trip should take uh, well. Fedor's records 102 days. So I was planning on a trip to take three months, but I had provisions for four months at sea as a backup. Um, so yeah, the, once you get down on the race track, it'll be subjective to where the storms push you and whether you're going through a storm, above a storm, below a storm, or what kind of tactical decisions um, you sort of make along the way for that section of the voyage. What's the
1: Antarctic convergence line, Lisa, and how does that play a part in your thinking?
2: Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting little um, sort of natural occurrence. So the polar convergence line is where the cold waters off Antarctica meet the warm tropical waters that are pushing down from the equator. And there's such a difference in temperature that they don't really mesh very well. So there's like this line, this imaginary line in the ocean, and the line on one side of the line, you've got sea temperatures of like 6, 8, 10 degrees, and on the other side of the line, on the south side, you've got, you know, 2, 3... Negatives, you know, or your freezing temperatures. So for me, it was really important where possible to kind of route myself above the Antarctic convergence line so that I was in those warmer waters. Because if I go in that colder temperature, then you're really putting yourself in a position of risk for icebergs, freezing tanks, um, through hole fittings and the likes that can expand and shrink too much. So you can create leakage effects, ice forming on the boat, ice in the rigging, snowstorms like all of those conditions are very prevalent on the south side because the temperatures are just so much colder. What about
1: the boat? How much work goes into prepping a boat for a journey like that?
2: Yeah, a lot. Um, So I... uh a big part of being successful with any ocean passage or any sailing trip in general or any adventure in general, um, it's preparation and, and making sure that you've really thought through every scenario that you could place. So I was I moved to Sydney to do the record and it took me about three and a half years to get the funding together to to try and buy a boat and then refit the boat. And I, I didn't really have the right funding the whole way through, but I remember, like, riding the bus into the city for work and I'd be on the bus going, okay, if I lost my rudder, I would have this on board, I would do this, I would deal with it, this situation. If I lost my rudder and I was flooding, I would deal with it this way. If I hit an iceberg and I f- broke that forward compartment, I'd deal with it, you know, and I was sort of problem-solving all the possible scenarios as I was just going about my daily life and that then formed my kind of refit schedule and in the refit it was every possible change you need to make, like the rigs off, all the rigging wires replaced. Why do you have to do
1: that? Why do you have to replace everything, refit everything?
2: Well, you're doing almost a lifetime's worth of work to a boat in three months. So if you think about a normal boat, it's in harbour as much as it's out to sea. They're not normally operating 24-7 in extreme conditions where the stresses to the boat are, you know, so far outside of its normal operating schedule. So your wear and tear on your equipment is extremely high in a record like that. Um, So for me, I wanted to make sure I had the best possible start and then you would have the gear fatigue over the period of the record and, and you end up taking spare parts and, and equipment with you, with the knowledge that you're going to start rebuilding that boat around you as you're sailing. It
1: just sounds such a huge undertaking, the, the <laughs> preparation and the Come planning and the funding. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll fun, see Lisa. you on the wind Sundays. <laughs> so by the time it actually starts, the, the day arrives for you to set off, were you even able to appreciate that this was happening or were you kind of just worn out from all of the lead up?
2: I was so, like, I hadn't slept. I had so much less sleep on land leading up to that departure than I actually got at sea, and I really didn't get much at sea. Um, So, yeah, I was exhausted mentally and physically, and I'd been working so incredibly hard on it for years, trying to pull it together, trying to figure it out. And, you know, you're getting... All this negativity the whole time as well. People saying you're crazy. It's not possible. How can you sail a fifty foot yacht solo? Who do you think you are? You know, all of this stuff was kind of taking place at the same time, and um, and I just was so focused and determined to go. And when I left, I hadn't slept the night before. I think I might have managed maybe an hour or two sleep. That I was still like downloading of all things, Kindle books and things like that, like <laughs> entertainment, because that was like my last minute. If I get time to deal with that, then I'll do that. Um, and I was so focused. I was just like untying the lines and, and doing all my stuff and rushing around, gave everyone a quick hug. My family, I'd had to postpone my departure by a week. So my family actually had to fly home for work. <laughs> so they weren't even there. And I jumped on the boat and I started just motoring out of the harbor and. As I'm motoring out, I didn't even look up, like I was just so focused. And as I'm motoring out, all these cars in the car park there in Albany just started tooting their horns and shouting and hollering and like wishing me well. And then I looked up and I had like a huge crowd, like people with banners and signs to wish me good luck. And and all these people from the community had come down and I was just so overwhelmed with it because I had planned so much about all the doing and the dealing with emergency situations, I hadn't really stopped to think about what it was going to be like to actually go <laughs> and, and and what that experience would be like, that relief or that terror or, you know. And it was this huge mix of am I going to come back home? Am I going to survive this? I'm living my dream so that's epically awesome but I'm utterly exhausted and, uh, you know, and it was just this whole crash of emotions that I remember like basically having almost a panic attack on the deck of the boat and I'm shaking uncontrollably. I'm starting to cry and I'm like trying to hide and like wave to people and pretend I'm okay. And, and, um, and it was that idea of like all those scenarios I'd spent months and months and months thinking, just like rolling and slamming through my mind as like, am I going to come back? Am I going to survive this? And, and, am I making the right choice? And, and then I remember thinking, you know what, I've prepared for this, and I've prepared for this over years, and I know I can do it, so let's just go and do it. And, um, and that took the stress away, and, and then I could just enjoy it.
0: podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Lisa, once you were actually off on this journey proper and out into the Southern Ocean. Are you up on deck most of the time?
2: No, it's too cold. So in my boat, um, she's got seven watertight compartments. The boat's called Climate Action Now and it's a fiberglass boat. It's, It's a fairly heavily overbuilt boat. So she's really strong structurally for those kind of big storm conditions. But with the different compartments, it means your living space is like five or six square metres in the middle of the boat. And I've put in a Perspex dome above my engine box. So I can stand on my engine and look out through the dome and actually check on the, the conditions, the boat, look for traffic and all of that. So that was done because it is so physically cold. You can't be on deck for extended periods of time or you're going to go into hypothermia. And what's the sky like? It goes through so many different moods and... Um, as a solo sailor, as a sailor on a long voyage like that, you you almost acclimatise to that rhythm of the ocean and it has a pulse and a beat of life that, that kind of exists on it. And it's, it's sort of dictated around your storms that come through and your pressure belts that change of your barometric pressure. And um, when the conditions are stormy, you're on deck doing a sail change or something and You know, I've seen storms that are so aggressive that you've got waves the size of a five story building. So you're looking up at a skyscraper of water like coming at you, and you're on deck having to deal with something with the boat. And the wind is so strong at about 80 knots, which is like, 120-kilometre-hour winds, it's so strong that it rips all the water off the top of the ocean, and so there's so much water in the air you can't actually breathe properly, so you have to cup your mouth and protect your mouth so you can get a breath of, like, oxygen, really. Um And then you're in this thing on a 15-metre boat, like, and it's just fury and it's just this ball of energy that's, like, roaring around you and the noise is just astronomical. Through the hull of the boat, you can just hear the howling and you hear the roar of the waves as they break. And and it's really, like, as, as scary as that sounds... It is a really magical part of the experience. It's <laughs> exhilarating. It's like you get this huge respect for the environment around you. You can't conquer the ocean. No one can conquer the ocean. You can move with the flow and the rhythms of the ocean. You can learn to, to ex- coexist, but you can't conquer it. And it's, it's like a, a slap in the face reality check that you're so insignificant as a single person on this planet, you just get so daunted by that power in such an awe-inspiring kind of way.
1: You're there solo with this extraordinary weather conditions all around you.
2: What on earth does that mean for sleep? How, when do you sleep? Can you sleep? What happens? You, you tend to sleep in 20 to 40 minute micro sometimes an hour and a half. I think that was the maximum sleep I got in the whole record. But once you're in really extreme storms and the boat's bedded down, so you've you've got your storm sails up and the boat's sailing really well, like climate action now is handling those conditions, you can um actually get sleep because there's nothing else you can do to help the boat. You've already done everything you can do. You can sleep
1: through those storms, Lisa. Yeah, I would
2: sleep (laughs) and I'd check on things every hour or so and and see how things are going. But in general, yeah, you would try and sleep. Sometimes you're in bed and you get airborne in your bunk and then you slam back down in your bed and you roll over and carry on sleeping. Um, I surfed a wave. I actually broke a new world record or new boat record um, on this last trip and I surfed a wave at 28.3 knots while laying in bed under autopilot so I was napping and I woke up to the boat just like surfing this huge wave just flying down and I braced and I'm like you never quite know if you're going to wipe out and then after that I was like oh yeah cool and like rolled over and went back to sleep. (laughs) You get so desensitised to it because you just live in extreme conditions like 24-7.
1: I imagine there's a lot you've got to do just looking after the boat on a journey like this. I mean what was your average day like
2: the boat requires maintenance, daily maintenance. I do deck checks. So I go up on deck every day and I do a walk over the whole deck and I'm looking for things vibrating loose like shackles or Allen key fittings or, you know, anything like that, that or wear and tear on the ropes. And I'm just sort of monitoring that. I check my steering gear every day. I check, you know, all of those sort of details. <laughs> You've got to eat. So you, you're kind of making meals, but all of my foods like freeze-dried meals. So it's these pouches of dried goods that you add a cup of boiling water to and you like mix it up and let it sit for 20 minutes and voila. Is served.
1: <laughs> um, Were you in regular contact with a support crew back on land somewhere?
2: Yes, all my uh, sort of short team as volunteers. And so I would text them and some of my friends and my family every morning on the sat phone and I would let them know basically that I survived the night, what my lat long position was and any kind of noticeable things that needed to be noted so that they had a bit of a general idea of what was happening on the boat. And then I would write the blog in the afternoon and I'd email that back. So then they would know I've survived the day. And, and it sort of just rolled like that. And then about once a week, I would have sort of like a five minute phone call with my family or my shore team or both or some media. Uh, and we would just check in with each other.
1: Were you getting much time for those Kindle books that you'd downloaded?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Surprisingly enough, like you will go sometimes days. Like I went once seven days and I didn't need to change the sails once. The conditions were so stable. The wind was the right direction. So you can spend and a huge amount of time with nothing to do as well out to sea. So yeah, books are books are my lifesaver.
1: Well, something did happen 72 days into this first attempt to circumnavigate Antarctica. What happened?
2: Yes. Well, it was a bit of a bad day in the office for me that day. Um, so day 72, by this point, I had sailed three quarters of the way around Antarctica. So I'd I'd sort of rounded Tasmania, rounded the South American coastline, so Cape Horn, and I was just passing under the South African coastline. So I was just entering into the South Indian Ocean, my final stretch of the voyage, and and I was ahead of Fedor Konyakov, and Australia was about four weeks away on the record. And um, it was 6pm at night and I had checked on things about 20 minutes earlier. I'd gotten up and the South Atlantic in general, was one big storm. So an average day in the South Atlantic was like six to eight metre seas, 35 to 45 knots of wind was like a normal day. And so every day was like that. So it didn't seem like it was a bad day um, compared to all the other days that had been like that. So I checked on things. It all looked good. It was just coming up to sunset. and, uh, And I went down and I put my head down to get a bit of sleep. And out of nowhere, I just had this really like ear-splittering bang, like it was just so violently loud that it left this like kind of metallic after-ringing in my ears and I knew something had gone like horribly wrong. And so I jumped up onto my engine box and I had initially thought it was something at the back of the boat that had broken, one of my rope piece of rigging wires at the back. And so I looked to the back of the boat and that was fine and then I looked to the front of the boat through my little Perspex dome And all I could see in the last bit of the daylight was my 22-metre-long mast just, like, jellying around like a hula girl shaking her hips, just flexing and bending like nuts. Mm. And I realised then that something had snapped. Like, I didn't know what, but I'd probably snapped a piece of rigging wire. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, tack the boat, like, change direction, tack the boat. And so I reached for my life jacket and I was just in like my base layer, like mid-layer gear. I didn't have any waterproofing clothing on. I had socks on. I didn't even bother putting boots on. I was in such a rush. And I grabbed my life jacket and I clipped it shut and I was just kind of climbing outside the boat and out of the hatch. And in the last second, just before I got outside, I just heard the most awful noise of like the mast coming, tearing down in these conditions. And it was this gut-wrenching noise of like metal on metal twisting and grinding and the whole boat shakes and shudders because all the tension's just released in the hull. Mm. And so everything's like splintering and exploding kind of around you And, and I just like completely froze. And after a few seconds I remember thinking to myself, I better go and see what that looks like. And so I climbed out of the hatch because I was already tethered on in all my base layers with my socks on. I just started getting wave after wave pounding me. I was soaked through in seconds. And in front of me, I could see that my mast had fallen to the starboard side or the right-hand side of the boat. And the way it had fallen, it's still kind of tangled and attached to the boat with all the other rigging wire. And so you've got all the ropes and the rigging holding it basically up onto the deck of the boat a little Mm. bit. So the last sort of two metres of the mast was trapped on the deck with all of the ropes and the rest of the mast was in the ocean. It had ripped all my rails out on the starboard side of the boat so all my safety lines and railing were missing. So that was just like open ocean there. Yeah, and so it turned the boat around 180 degrees and the mast and all the debris in the ocean was then on the windward side of the boat. And so as these waves were coming through, they were hitting the mast and rigging and everything first Mm. and then hitting the boat. And what it was happening was it was sort of driving it all up onto the deck of the boat with this aggressive kind of push as the wave would pass over us, and then on the back end, it would try and drag it back down or the mast would sink again and it would sort of pull backwards into the ocean. And it was creating this seesaw motion that was so violent that it started to literally like cut the boat in half like a saw. Oh,
1: Lisa. So this sounds like an absolute disaster. Like yeah. this sounds like the, the, the end is imminent. Is that what you were, were feeling, thinking? Did you have a moment to even think of that?
2: I didn't have any time to think at that point. And it, it's definitely what I had considered one of the worst case scenarios. And a dismasting does happen quite regularly in sailing. But to have it happen in that, sort of remote ocean as a solo sailor, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that it would take a minimum of three days for help to arrive. And if I lost the boat and abandoned to a life raft, the chances of me surviving in a life raft in those conditions or the right life raft staying upright in those conditions was almost non-existent. And so, yeah, it it was a do or die situation for sure.
1: Do you know what had caused the dismasting? Was it just the wind?
2: No, it actually turned out to be an electrical item failed in the mast or this is best guess. We lost the mast and everything overboard. So the best guess looking at the way the brake pattern occurred and everything with the piece of rigging wire that snapped, it turned out to be an electrical item failed and was contacting the mast at 12 volts and then the mast was getting charged up. And that little bit uh, where the wire sort of swages into the holder at the bottom there can sit a little bit of water and it's salt water so it was electrically charging the salt water and then that aged the stainless steel about 10 years in three months it it shouldn't have happened at all it was just like a really bad freak act
1: what did you do in the middle of that storm with your mast coming off and and in danger of sewing your boat in two
2: yeah i mean i you don't have a choice you have to get rid of the rigging and the only way to do that is to either cut it or disconnect it and I had bolt cutters and I had a battery-operated angle grinder for the purpose of cutting rigging away in a disaster like this. Um- The bolt cutters were useless on a pitching rolling deck. And because I was effectively anchored in the storm now, these waves weren't passing under the boat. They were breaking against the boat and going over the boat. So every sort of 30 seconds to a minute, I was getting like a metre or so of white water across the deck. And it's so powerful, you can't even hold on. So you're getting dragged down the deck with your tools and everything every minute. Could you see
1: the waves coming or was, was it dark by now?
2: It was dark. You can see a little bit in the moonlight, but more than anything, you're relying on the roar, like the noise of the wave approaching. You can hear the roar and it's like this noise that just gets louder and louder and louder until it impacts the boat and then it kind of throws the boat and you hear the mast groaning, you hear ropes snapping and everything's kind of really aggressive and violent. And, um, yeah, so I ended up actually going with the idea of disconnecting the pieces of rigging. It took me four hours and there was certainly... Uh, some incredibly close calls over the course of that night where I was almost washed off the boat or I was almost severely injured at times.
1: Did your crew know what was going on? Had you been in touch with them or you didn't have time?
2: I issued a pan-pan to my shore manager, Jeff, about 15 minutes into the emergency. It occurred to me that I should probably tell somebody um, because I was so just, like, focused on save the boat, save the boat. And I, I really didn't feel like I had any time to... To do anything, I felt like any second that mast was going to pull off the deck of the boat and then the next wave's going to push it through the hull of the boat. And then I've got a breached hull and I'm sinking. And um, I remember calling Jeff up. He was asleep. It was 3 a.m. in Australia. It was 6 p.m. local time off South Africa there. And I was a thousand miles from Lance. So I was well down in the Southern Ocean. And I remember phoning him up and waking him up. And I was like, Jeff, I've dismasted. The master snapped at deck level, and I kind of gave him a rundown, and I said, I'm issuing a pan-pan. Now, a pan-pan's one step below a mayday, and so the pan-pan puts everyone on high alert that I'm in a situation, but it's not requesting immediate assistance, because I knew the only way through was to save myself, because help wouldn't get there in time. And um, it took me four hours of crawling around on the deck to, to kind of cut everything free, and... And at one point I had to actually go out on the bow of the boat onto the bowsprit where I had like a 50-50 shot that I was going to come back on board the boat. Mm. But it was the only thing I could do to save the boat was to climb out there and do that job. And I was hypothermic at the end of cutting the rigging free and I went below and I phoned my shore crew up and just told them I'd survived and went to bed with hot water bottles, dry clothing, and tried to, like, warm myself up. And then sunrise the next day I got up and I... Um basically set about trying to clear the debris. So there was just stuff everywhere still attached to the boat, ropes overboard. Like, you know, I had a hole the size of like a large dinner plate um, where the mast had been sawing the boat in half. So I had this big hole through the deck of the boat into the boat and I still, the conditions had calmed a little bit the next day. So it enabled me to be able to, you know, start patching the boat and doing some repairs. And it took me all day to to just make the boat movable again. At the end of the day, I had to make a decision on if I stayed in the Southern Ocean and built a jury rig, which is using debris to build a new mast. Uh, or void my world record, turn the motor on and start motoring towards South Africa. The safest choice was South Africa, and I really made that choice because of the hole on the side of the boat. I could patch the hole, but structurally the boat was weakened quite significantly, and if I got pinned between two 10-metre waves with the bow and the stern spread across the wave, there was every chance that the boat could buckle at that point because of the weakness in the hull. Um, So the only smart decision I could do was was go to South Africa.
1: I feel like I'm speaking for your mother here that I'm really, really glad you made that decision. <laughs> <laughs> um, extraordinarily, you managed to get back to to port to Cape Town where you got a new mast and and refitted the boat. Was it ever a question that you'd, you'd head back out and attempt to finish this circumnavigation?
2: Not really, because I, I remember straight after the dismasting just like being super depressed, like just... That was three and a half years of cold, hard work, being so utterly focused on that one trip and everything was torn away in a heartbeat. And it wasn't until I realised I could repair the boat and go back to my position of dismasting and restart the record and do it with one stop that I actually kind of felt like I had something to live for again or, or some life in me. And um, so, yeah, it was it was chaos on land in Cape Town trying to figure it all out and I managed to find a mast that had been sitting in a shed in South Africa for like 5,000 Australian that fit my boat and I put it in the boat and, and I left again. And um, and that last bit back to Australia was in winter, which is like in way winter. harder. In winter. So what did your
1: mum think about this? I'm, I'm taking her as her, as your conscience here, Lisa, because I'm not <laughs> sure you were thinking straight.
2: When you head back out in winter, what what did she tell you? Well, I mean, she, she knows that I'm not been reckless with this, that I'm doing my research, that I'm making smart choices. Even though they aren't choices other people would make, they're still well-informed decisions. And so I had been working with my meteorologist and I asked him to give me like worst case scenarios for winter in the Southern Ocean. And, and I realised again that there's this huge thing with the Southern Ocean that people go, oh my God, it, it's, it's unsaleable in winter. And it is saleable. It's just really cold <laughs> and rough. <laughs> oh. um, and so I made the decision to go and she, and she was okay with it. And about five days in, I called her up and I quit. <laughs> you quit? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do it. I, I, I was just getting absolutely smashed by these waves and I'd been on deck fixing something on the low side of the boat and this huge wave had ripped across the deck of the boat, like buried us under like three metres of water. And I managed to hook my arm over the piece of rigging wire, my legs and my hips and my waist were overboard as this wave fully engulfed us. And on the back end of that, I just managed to kind of roll inboard and into the rails. And I I was so shaken because it was so close. You know, if I hadn't got my arm on, I would have been washed overboard and I was gone. Like I was tethered to the boat, but That much water, the tether would probably more likely snap Mm. or I'm still in the water and I still have to figure out how to get out of the water and it's the Southern Ocean so it's freezing. (laughs) So you get less than 10 minutes to save yourself in those those conditions before you die from hypothermia. So, um, yeah, and I called her up and I was like, it's too dangerous, it doesn't feel right. I had a major head cold. I'd been seasick, quite chronically seasick when I left and I said, I'm going to turn around and go back to Cape Town. It, It just doesn't feel right. And I feel like the world's telling me that I shouldn't do this. And so I I had this conversation with her and, and she's like, okay, well, you're in a big storm. You can't do anything right now. Just ride the storm out. And on the back end of that, let's have another chat, see how you feel. And that night she pondered on it and she wrote me this email that I read in the morning. And the email was like, I just know you'll never forgive yourself if you quit. So just imagine that you're still 72 days into your world record. You never dismastered. You're one day ahead of Federal Cognac Australia is like four weeks away. And imagine you're still on the record like you were there and you were experiencing conditions like this and and you were feeling like this. And, you know, would that have been enough to make you quit if you were still on the record and you'd never gone to Cape Town? And I remember thinking about that a lot and realising that I'd let emotion override logical choice. And I I was starting to kind of look at Cape Town as like a second trip rather than a continuation of the first trip. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I I sucked it up and I kept going. (laughs) (laughs) And it was good advice and you did it and you
1: managed to become the first woman to sail solo around Antarctica with this one stop. I mean, it is incredible, you know, huge jubilation,
2: celebration.
1: How are you feeling?
2: it was mixed feelings cuz i sort of felt like i mean obviously I'd, I'd achieved something great but at the same time i'd failed in my ultimate goals and i felt like i felt like people were putting me up on too big of a pedestal for what i felt i had achieved and um and it was this really funny like there was quite a lot of trauma with the dismasting, quite a lot of near misses that night, and I had it had changed my relationship with the sea. It had changed my faith in myself. It had changed my trust in the boat, and and it created this um, scenario where I was almost putting on a brave face for mm. everyone else, rather than really feeling like I was had something to celebrate. Um, and I still celebrated it, and I still saw it as a great achievement. It just wasn't the achievement that I was really ultimately going for.
1: So. Did attempting it again just feel like an inevitability, feel like the only solution to to that feeling?
2: Oh, yeah. Like I knew before I even reached Australia on that first record that I'd be back in the Southern Ocean doing this record again. I also knew that I would need some time to to deal with my emotions and stuff um, and to kind of get over that record and really find myself again before I felt like I would be okay to go again.
1: When did you set off again, Lisa?
2: February twenty first this year, five years after the initial record. And um, yeah, so I've just come back from sailing solo around Antarctica again. You did it? Yeah, so I um I did it in ninety two days, <gasps> non stop, solo and unassisted, and I broke Fedor Konyakov's record by nine and a half or almost ten days, which is just insane.
1: <laughs> so were the celebrations genuine this time?
2: Oh, yeah, and it's just been this huge whirlwind because I, again, <laughs> I have not had a second to collect myself after the record, but there was the record was epic and awesome but there was also this really cool science stuff that I was able to do as well and, and I, for me I just feel like I've had the impact on our communities that I really was aiming for and I, that's something that's worth celebrating for sure.
1: How did the conditions compare this, this time to your first effort?
2: It was interesting to see I was I was a month later this time than last time so the sea state was in general much larger but the winds weren't as strong so it was creating it was a, it was quite a different trip really uh, I think overall the conditions were worse this time than last time but I didn't have the dismasting um And, you know, I had like a solid two week block of snowstorms and blizzards and sleet and hail and just freezing, freezing conditions and waves that just like, we got flipped upside down a couple of times by waves, knockdowns like all the time in these big storms. And, um, yeah, I mean, it certainly, it it tested me as much this time as it did last time. I think the benefit was I had that previous experience to fall back on and, Mm -hmm. And I'd also gone through a worst case scenario and survived to to tell the tale and (laughs) knew that that kind of preparation aspect of it was thought out and thorough enough to help me survive those situations. So I felt that I was capable of taking it on again. What was it
1: like, Lisa, sailing back past that point, that part of the ocean where you'd been caught in that terrible storm and had your mast broken?
2: I remember breaking into tears randomly for like a week through that area. And it wasn't necessarily that I was there back through that section of the ocean, but it was the accumulation of two and a half months of ocean sailing, sleep, deprivation, fatigue. I was doing a lot more time on maintenance because the boat was breaking apart around me, which happens on records, and I was repairing things or doing preventative maintenance. So I was getting a lot less sleep. And it was that extreme chronic fatigue Adding on to you know the emotional extra challenge of sailing through there again that really kind of like put me in that state, um, but yeah, I, I I felt like I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole record. Like I never, I sort of made a deal with myself that I wouldn't celebrate the fact that I was doing it until I'd done it, and I couldn't be let down again by not succeeding. So I didn't want to go into it with the idea that finishing this record and getting the overall record was the only goal. I had to have something else around it to, to focus on, and that was the science and the environmental campaigns that I run. And so for me, that really helped that mental health because it wasn't just about the record. It was also about all this citizen science work. I was doing the microplastic sampling and stuff. And so that gave me something else to focus on. But even like the last week sailing into port, even the last night, I was like, don't stuff it up, Lisa. <laughs> don't run into a reef. Don't fall asleep. Like you know, it's just this constant. Like don't lose it all now. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I definitely um, sort of was just waiting for another disaster. Like, half the time. I'm so glad that didn't
1: happen. <laughs> Congratulations, Lisa. It is an incredible story. Thanks so much for for telling it on conversations.
2: Thanks so much for having me on the show.
1: Lisa Blair was my guest on Conversations today and Lisa's written a book about her experiences and she's also got a bunch of speaking events coming up. So have a look at her website if you want more information on that. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Naz. Hi, Naz. Naz. Uh, Last month, I spent $65 on subscription services and... I only watched one show, my own. Um, And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 fair enough. Been there. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain and in 2021 I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help. Quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So, this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions, budget out our beauty regimens, date without debt. And heaps
2: more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.